All right, well, today, as we continue with our study of the book of Acts, and then also as we continue to develop this great big transformational idea that life for the believer in Jesus, life for us, is mission. We come today to Acts chapter 14. And with it, we come as well to the first recorded sermon in the book of Acts that is actually preached to people who do not previously know the Hebrew Old Testament, and we'll just call that the Bible because that's what it was in that day. And they weren't at least consciously looking for the Messiah of the Bible that, well, they didn't know anything about. In other words, every message that we've looked at as we've traveled very slowly and carefully and meticulously through this book, every sermon that we've studied, and we've studied a bunch, have been preached at synagogues or preached in the temple courts or preached to people, Jew and Gentile alike, who did have an understanding of the Bible, who were looking consciously for the Messiah of the Bible. They didn't yet put it together that it was Jesus, but they were on board with Scripture. Not so today. Today it's different. Today they're going to preach to a group of people, not in a synagogue, not in a temple, but in a city and in the gates of that city, and they're going to preach, Paul and Barnabas are, to a group of people who don't know anything about the Bible. What's that? They don't respect the Bible that they don't even know anything about. Is it an authority for my life or is it not? How is it different from any of the other religious literature? They don't have any of these categories that all of these other audiences that we've seen thus far in this book have had, and they're not consciously at least looking for Jesus. And here's why this matters, because that describes quite a few of the people that you work with, quite a few of the people like that are your neighbors, Quite a few of the people, maybe in your family, your social circles, it certainly describes a lot of the folks in our city. And that's not a criticism. It's just an observation. You and I are called to take the mercies and message of Jesus, guys, by and large, to a group of folks who really don't know that much about the Bible. And, yeah, maybe they've heard about Jesus, but they're certainly not consciously looking for Jesus, which explains why they're not sitting with you, perhaps, today. And what we'll see today when we get to this really unique message is that it is truly unique. It's different from the previous messages that were preached to people who knew the Bible and were looking for the Messiah. See, in those messages, they argued in favor of Christ from the Scriptures, which makes sense, doesn't it? In this message today, they're not going to do that. They're going to argue from something else, from something that the people in this city of Lystra, which is the name of the town... And I think in the city of Fort Lauderdale, know very well, not the Bible, but emptiness. Here's what Paul and Barnabas know, and I think that we need to kind of feel this out today too. They know that every human being is worshiping something or someone. And they know that at anything and anyone other than Christ will not just leave you empty, will not just cause you to be found empty, it will, in fact, make you empty. You become what you worship, and if your God is empty, you become empty. But here's the deal. If your God is Christ, you become full. And there's a big difference between empty and full. And we'll see that today as we begin to look at this story. But the big idea for today is this, and we need to take it to heart. It is that this mission of taking the mercies and message of Jesus to the world calls us first to be full of Jesus. And then it calls us to take that same Jesus who alone can make full 
to all the people around us, like the folks you work with, like the folks in your neighborhood, like the people in your family and in your social circle and and in this city. So we pick up our study today in Acts chapter 14, beginning at verse 8, where again we find Paul and Barnabas, these first Christian missionaries ever, on the first Christian missionary journey ever, and we pick it up in the city of Lystra, where Luke, who is the author of this great book, says this. In verse 8, he says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting, and I just want to pause there for a minute and tell you where he's sitting. As the story plays out, we realize, oh, okay, he's sitting at the city gates, and so I want to tell you why up front. The city gates in ancient cities were like the heart of the city. The city gates were the marketplace. They were the courtroom. They were the assembly place. They were the most populous, buzzing, teeming with activity and people place in the city. The gates were where you wanted to be. And this guy was sitting at the city gates. And why? Because he was a man who could not use his feet. For he was crippled from birth. And then just to give us some idea as to how severe this condition was... Luke tells us as well that this man had never, not once, ever walked. And I think it's important that we understand as well that in all likelihood, this guy grew up in this town. In all likelihood, all the people around him grew up in this town, which means that in all likelihood, the whole doggone town knew that this guy was crippled from birth and had never walked. Life was not quite as transient then as it is today. And they would see him every day. Guess where? Same spot, city gate, because every day since he was a boy, either members of his family or some friends of the family would come over and they would pick him up on a mat, a mat that would have had like poles to make it, you know, easy to carry. And they would have carried him out to the city gate, this most populous of places in the morning. And they would have set him in the same spot day after day after day, year after year, decade after decade. We don't know how old he is. But he was the lame guy, lame from birth, who begged in that spot in the city gate, every day, in the city of Lystra, and everybody knew that. They knew his story, but his story is about to change. Because we're then told that this lame beggar at the city gate listened to Paul. As Paul was speaking to all of the people gathered there at the city gates, and Paul notices that this guy is leaning in, this guy is pressing in, this guy has, you know, the eye contact thing going, he's nodding along, and not because he's falling asleep. Like he is dialed in on what Paul is saying. And I don't know if the spirit spoke to Paul or he's just at this point recognizing, okay, yeah, the spirit is at work in this particular guy. But he notices this and Paul then looking intently at him and seeing that this lame man had faith to be made well. How? Physically? Because I think that cheapens this story. I think that dumbs it way down. I think that is in second place and it's a distant second. One of the mistakes that we make in life is we think that physical healing is the greatest thing that can come our way. Is that what the New Testament teaches? Is that what our own mind teaches as we think it through? The single greatest act of healing that any person anywhere can experience is the healing power of the blood of Christ over our sin. The man has the faith to be healed spiritually. And if Christ heals you spiritually, even if he doesn't heal you physically in this life, has he not gained for you an eternity of wholeness and even of physical well-being? That's part of the gospel, too. 
So Paul notices this guy's leaning in. He's dialed in. He's understanding it. He's getting it. He's nodding along. He is, the spirit is at work in this guy's life. And in his heart, he has the faith to be made well. And so Paul, who sees this, wrote the guy a little note. And he said, can you just give that to the guy? over there? And the guy opens the note. And in the note, it says, listen, when nobody's looking, I want you to try something for me. It might sound crazy, but I think that Jesus might have the power to, you know, I mean, help you to stand upright. So when nobody's looking, and I'm distracting them, okay? I want you to just try to stand up. And if it works, I'll point you out. It's not what he does. He doesn't take like a five-minute break, you know, like a band at a concert. You know what? We're going to take a little intermission, and then we'll come back in like 10 minutes. So go get a drink, use the bathroom, you know, and then sneaks over to the guy and says, listen, tonight when you're all alone in your room and it's dark and nobody else is around, I want you to try something. It might sound crazy, but I think that Jesus has the power to heal you and just, you know, give it a shot. Give it. This is very public. In front of all of these people who have seen this guy every day and know his story. It says, Paul said to this man in a loud voice, it's unmistakably bold. He says, stand upright on your feet. That's a command. Like he doesn't say, you know what, give it a shot. And we'll watch and just like if it happens, no, just do it. Stand upright on your feet, and the man looks at Paul and says, that is absolutely ridiculous. Clearly, you are not from around here. If you did, you would know like everybody else here that I've never done that. Do you think I've not tried that before? You know, like, ooh, you're just coming along with this novel idea, Mr. New Guy to town? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That is a fool's errand. Stand upright on your feet. Are you trying to embarrass me? Is this not humiliating enough? It's not what he says. I think that's what we say sometimes. You know, I think that God comes to us in an addiction that in our own power, we got no power over. And we've never stood on our feet. And he says, stand on your feet. And we're like, thanks. Appreciate the suggestion. No, no, it's not a suggestion. Okay, well, great. Thanks for the command to do something ridiculous. Does Christ not have the power to get you off the ground? See, we do that in marriages too. You know, like at some point we become so discouraged, we just look back on the whole thing and say, well, it was a dumb idea from the beginning. We've never stood up on our feet, but now we're going to? Does Jesus not have the power to do that? We look at our wealth in which we trust, in wealth we trust. And God says, all right, I want you to do this. I want you to worship me with it. I want you to put it at my disposal. I want you to help this poor family over here. I want you to help the hungry over here. I want you to do this. 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 I want you to stand on your feet. And it takes spiritual power to do it. And we're like, thanks for the suggestion. It's not a suggestion. I'm not throwing that out there just in case you want to try it. This guy gets it, man. Paul says to this guy in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And the lame man in front of everybody didn't just stand up. It says that he sprang up like he brought energy to his obedience. And he began walking for the first time in his life, a healing that is emblematic of the far greater healing that is his and the far more important one, the healing of his sin. And then we read that when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they went bananas which you can imagine that they would. 
They lifted up their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, which is actually an important little detail. Why? Because Paul doesn't speak the Lyconian language. Barnabas doesn't speak the Lyconian language. All of a sudden, these guys like burst out and they're shouting at each other and they're chattering in their home tongue, which these guys, Paul and Barnabas, don't understand. So they don't know what's being said about them and they don't know what's being planned either until it's already happened for the most part. But look at what they said. They said to themselves, or they lifted up their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. I love that. Now, I don't love that they attribute that to Paul and Barnabas, but I love the fact that they're expressing a sincere desire, which they're going to celebrate here in a second, to have a God come down from heaven to them in the likeness of a man. That's very different from the gods of this world. Very different. And so they lifted up their voices saying in that language that Paul and Barnabas don't understand, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, who is the father of the Greek gods, and Paul they called Hermes, who is the messenger of the Greek gods. And they called him that because he was the chief speaker. And so the priest of Zeus, whose temple was also right there at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands, meaning garland wreaths, so they would put them on their heads and and crown them in some sense to the city gates where all of this is happening. And he wanted to offer a sacrifice of worship to to what they all presumed were two gods who had come to them in the likeness of men, and he wanted to sort of lead the town in worship, you know, with the crowd, We've all conferred and we've decided we're going to sacrifice to you because you must be gods in the form of men. But in verse 14, it says that when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, when they finally figured out what was actually being said and they're seeing, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, what what are you guys, they figured it out, okay, They, they see what's being done here. They tore their garments, they they ripped their clothes, which in those days was a sign of grief and of mourning to the extreme. And they rushed out into the crowd to put an end to this immediately. And then they cried out, guys, well, their first sermon to people who don't understand the Bible. Who are not at least consciously looking for Jesus. And here it is. They said, men, why are you doing these things? Meaning, stop. And then they said, for we are also men of like nature with you. Which means that A, you should not worship us, and B, we know something about you. You might not know the scriptures, but you know all about emptiness, and here's why. Because every human being is always worshiping and serving something. And if you worship and serve anything or anyone other than Jesus, you are made empty. You become empty like your God. But if you worship and serve Jesus, you will be made Full, you see? And so they said, look, we bring you good news. The word gospel means good news. But notice this particular gospel message. It's it's a little different. We bring you good news, and here it is. It is that you should turn from the worship of these vain, and the word means worthless or empty. 
You should turn from the worship of these empty things that have not just left you empty, they've made you empty as you've pursued them with the fullness of your life. And you should turn from them to a living God who, unlike your vain, worthless, empty, dead little gods, is not only alive but is active. And look at what he does. He's the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and who made them in such a way as Paul spells out in Romans to do what? To show forth his power, to display and to manifest his nature and even his grace. For in past generations, Paul goes on, he allowed all the nations, you know, like these people at Lystra, to walk in their own sinful ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness to you, they're saying, for he did good to you by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and by satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And by the way, in the person of Jesus Christ, little as an aside, he became what you're looking for, a God with a mouth that speaks, a God with eyes that see, A God with ears that hear, with a nose that smells, with hands that feel, with feet that walk. He came to us in the likeness of a man, and then instead of demanding a sacrifice for us, knowing instead that there is not a thing that we can offer on our own to the Lord Almighty that will not be defiled by the very touch of our hand or the mixed motivations of our hearts. Instead of demanding us to do what we cannot do, He did for us what we could not do. He offered His own life as a sacrifice to that same God, a perfect and whole and completely satisfying sacrifice, which is ours through faith in Him. Look, I added a little to the message, but... But that's it. And I hope that you can see how this sermon that they preach in this city at this place to these people is a lot different from the ones that have been preached thus far in the book of Acts to people who already got the Bible and signed off on it. Hey, I'm in on the Bible, right? Okay, well, you're in on the Bible. Great. In those sermons, here's what they did. Let's tell you what the prophets in the Bible that you're all in on. Say about Jesus, and then let's compare that with Jesus. David says this, now look at Jesus. Okay, Moses says this, now look at Jesus. Isaiah says this, now look at Jesus. Can you not see how Jesus is the Messiah? Makes sense you would argue that way, or they would come with the law, which just makes it simple. The law makes it simple. And they just say, all right, little quiz. You buy the law? Okay, great. It's authoritative in your life? Right on. Me too. How many of you have ever told a lie, you know, and like everybody in the crowd raises their hand? Who doesn't raise their hand? How many of you have told so many lies you can't remember how many you've told? Because it's not like it's two. You know, there was the time and you were a little boy and then you knocked the lamp over with the football in the living room and it broke and then you blamed it on your toddler brother, you know, who was just pulling up on the table when mom walked in very conveniently for you. And of course, you've, you know, just suffered ever since then with great guilt. No, it was brilliant. Brilliant. Totally got you off the hook. Then there was that other time and you were a teenager and you're messing around with your buddies in the car and they're, Woo, you know, right? And somehow you got in this stupid one car accident, you know, and then you told your dad that what really happened is a little kid rode his bike in front of you because that makes you real heroic. And I swerved down, I missed him and I hit the sign on the side of the road. And oh man, I'm just so glad you didn't hit the, car, the kid, son, your high five and your buds, you know, but you didn't do that. Some of you are thinking, man, I wish I had thought of that. That would have been really a good one. 
haven't lied once or twice and it scarred us so we remember. We have lied, all of us, so many times. We have no idea how many times we've lied. White lies, black lies, I don't care how you categorize them. Now, what do you call someone who lies countless numbers of times? It's okay. It's everybody here. Yeah, it's a liar. Like if we had name tags right now in Sharpies, we could all just write liar and then just put it on and wear it proudly. You are in a community full of liars. Here's what God's law says. Starts getting sobered right about here. Thou shall not lie. Thou shall not bear false witness. You know what that means? That means that we could rip that label off and get a new one and just write guilty. Put that one on. Because we're all guilty. That's the bad news of the law. The good news of the gospel is that Christ died for the guilty. He died to offer the only satisfying sacrifice for... Well, liars and thieves, and we're all thieves. Don't get excited and agitated by that. You are. You're a thief. It's okay. I am too. We've all stolen things. I ripped off a yo-yo from a 7-Eleven once. Guy chased me out the door. That was scary, man. I'll never forget that. I I never stole another yo-yo. But we're all thieves. We're all lazy sometimes, and we get paid to do hard work. Thief. We all use our employer's stuff for personal things. Thievery. We take credit for ideas that don't belong to us. But we sure enjoy the credit. We cheat on tests and we steal good grades. And Christ died for thieves. But you are guilty, right? Thou shalt not steal. What about adultery? Now you're feeling better about yourself until you realize that Jesus says, oh, to look at another person with lust in your heart is to be an adulterer. Uh-oh. Dad, gum it. Now every, i got to get a new name. Adulterer. We'll put that one on with everyone else. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Guilty. Oh, he died for adulterers. For the covetous. For murderers. You're like, no, I'm clear on that one. No, because to look at your brother, right, and to be angry with him, Jesus says, is to commit a form of murder. So it's easy to come to people who sign off on the Bible, they buy the law, they recognize it as authoritative and say, you know, I'm going to show you that you're a sinner. It's not really complicated. The math is simple. And I'm going to present Christ to you as the only one who can satisfy the demands of God as a result of your personal violation, violations of his law. But look, that's not what we're dealing with here in Lystra. It's a different deal. And I don't know that it's what we're dealing with so much, at least anymore, in Fort Lauderdale. And so, you know, Paul and Barnabas don't come with that, at least as a part of the initial conversation. They had to get to it at some point. A church is formed in that city And they had to understand sin and Christ and forgiveness and eternal life. So I'm not skipping past that, but I am saying that they didn't lead with that. And I'm not so sure that leading with that is necessarily as effective in our city as it used to be either. It is with some people, but not with others. I think that you can come to some people in our city and go, hey, you know, don't you know, in so many words, that you violated God's law and therefore that you're a sinner and you need to be forgiven? I mean, don't you feel guilty about anything? Okay, generally speaking, the answer to that is no, no, and no. No, I don't know that I violated, keyword, your God's law. Like you can choose whether or not God is going to be God. 
Well, he's God for you, but not for me, even though he's the almighty God, but just in your construct. And it may not logically make a lot of sense, but it's the way folks think. So, no, I I don't know that I violated the law of your God because I don't know anything about it. From what I'm hearing, I don't think I want to know anything about it. I don't recognize it as authoritative in my life. I don't really appreciate you bringing it up, to be perfectly frank. Sinner, I don't even know what you mean when you say that. All I know is my life is better than most and maybe better than yours. And no, I don't feel guilty about anything. What in the world do I have to feel guilty about? So they don't lead with that. They lead with something that these people and that our people know a lot about. You know what that is? Emptiness. Emptiness. And they come to them and they say, you know what, we have good news for you. Good news, that's the word gospel. We've got good news for you. We'll get to the you're forgiven through Christ thing in a minute, but we're going to lead with this. We have come to declare a God to you who will not make you empty like everything else has, but who will instead make you full. And as I said at the beginning, you know, there's a big difference between empty and full, between the gods of this world and Jesus. And we hear that in the Psalms. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 115, beginning in verse 2. He says, why should the nations say, the nations, right, the people who don't know God's word, that's what he's talking about. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Now he's going to answer his own question. He says, our God is in the heavens. Now hang on a second. He is, but he also took upon himself flesh, came into this world in the likeness of a man. Our God is in the heavens and he does what ever it is that he pleases, because unlike the gods of this world, he's not dead but alive. He's not powerless but all-powerful. And now he talks about the gods of this world. He says they're idols, that's what he calls them, are silver and gold, the work of human hands, and as a result they have mouths, but what? They do not speak. You're like, yeah, but I need a word from my God. Well, take a seat, man, because it's going to be a while, like forever. They can't speak. They have eyes, but they do not see, which means they don't see you. They have ears, but they do not hear your cries for help or your cries of praise. Noses, but they do not smell. You see what he's constructing? A being that is completely insensible, has no idea what's happening around him or what's happening around you. There's a futility to this. There's an emptiness to this. They have hands, but they do not feel, and neither do they help. They have feet, but they do not walk or run or come to your aid. I mean, this is a stationary little worthless, empty God. And they do not even make a sound in their throat. And then he says something truly profound. He says, those who make them become, not sometimes, but the idea is always, become like them. And so do, don't miss this, all who trust in them. So what is he saying? He's saying you become what you worship. And if what you worship is empty, guess what? You become empty. And just like your empty little God, though you have a mouth, what's the point? Nothing comes out of it that really matters. Though you have eyes, you don't see what 
what's truly valuable. Though you have ears, you're sensing nothing of, of the Spirit. Though you have a nose, you cannot discern the smell of life or the aroma of death either. That surrounds you. Though you have hands, the fruit of your hands will die completely with you. I mean, you never truly possess anything in this life. It's like sand. It just runs through your fingers. You have it for a time, and then you leave it to somebody else. And though you have feet, you'll never go anywhere meaningful. And you want to argue with the psalmist, you know, because it's kind of harsh. And you want to say, okay, look... (laughs) He's talking about little gods that they chiseled out of stone or little gods that they hammered out of metal and then they worshipped and served their little golden gods. That's stupid. I mean, I would never do such a thing. You know? Okay, well, let's think about it for a minute because they were not quite as unsophisticated as we think. I mean, it's, it's unsophisticated to some degree, but they didn't actually think this is the god. They built this as something that they would hope that the invisible god would inhabit, a representation of that god, and then they would pour out their worship to that god. I think that's a viable question. Because, for example, if what you wanted from the gods back then was health, all right, you would make your sacrifice of worship to the god of health. Why? Because you loved the god of health. You found the god of health to be incredibly impressive. You were enamored with the god of health. The god of health you discovered was worthy of the worship and service of your life. No, the god of health was nothing more than a means to an end. What you sacrificed for was health. Your sacrifice was just a bribe. I'm going to try to pay off the God of health with the hopes that he will give me what I really want, which is not himself. It's health. If you're in business and things are down, man, so you want things to go up, you would sacrifice to the God of commerce because you loved and wanted to worship the God of commerce? or com- No, because you loved and wanted commerce itself. It's a bribe. It's a means to an end. If you were lonely and you wanted love, You would sacrifice to the God of love because you love the God of love? No, because you love love itself. That's what you want. The God of love is nothing more than a means to an end. And your sacrifice is nothing more than a bribe. I'm going to pay this, hopefully, to get what I really worship, to get what I really want. And I'm not all that sure that today we're much more sophisticated. I mean, you know, we don't bow down to little figurines. I get that part. But as I look around our culture, as I look around our city, I I see a lot of people making huge sacrifices for the God of health. Fashioning their whole life around it. Look, I'm not against exercise. Really, like I'm into it. Not against diet. I'm not against being healthy. I'm not against pursuing healthy habits and all that kind of stuff. I'm against worshiping with your life, making it your God. What about money? It's the same deal. Sacrificing marriages, sacrificing children, sacrificing reputation, sacrificing integrity, sacrificing conscience, sacrificing health, all in pursuit of it. It's what sits on the throne of of the lives of so many people, including so many of us. What do you do with your wealth? Do you worship the Lord with it? I think if the answer to that is no, you've got to take a hard look at it and go, okay, well, is it really at his disposal? Is it... Is he on the throne? Is it? These are viable questions. Love? Man, we are a culture that worships at the altar of love and sacrifice so many precious things there. We're not all that different. 
And so when Paul and Barnabas came to the people of Lystra, who a lot like us, you know, or people in our city, don't know the Bible and don't really look, consciously at least, for Jesus, they changed their tactic. They nuanced their message. And they say, all right, we're going to talk to you about something you know about. We're going to talk to you about emptiness. And we have good news. And the good news is this. We come to declare to you a God who will not make you empty, but who will make you full and who in the person of Jesus Christ came to you in the very form that you desire, in the likeness of a man. He has a mouth and his mouth speaks. It speaks through His Word by the Spirit. And if you're in the Word, which is why you need to be in the Word, you will develop ears to hear it. It speaks in places here like this. It speaks through people in your community group. It speaks in the craziest ways possible. The Lord's voice can come over the radio to you. My wife learned this when she was pregnant with our second child. We'd had two miscarriages. We had miscarriage, baby, miscarriage, and then she got pregnant again. And this time it was with Haley, who's 13 today. But, you know, when you've been through the miscarriage route a couple of times and you've gone to the doctors and you've done the ultrasound and listened for the heartbeat and you haven't heard it, when you go in and you've experienced that twice, it's unnerving, isn't it? All right, so like she's laying there on the table waiting for the doctor to come in. We're going to listen for the heartbeat. We're going to do the ultrasound and all that business. And she realizes that she's singing along, don't miss this, with George Michael to the song, You Gotta Have Faith. George Michael is the voice of God. Seriously. He's everywhere. He's the God who invented language and communication. Can he not communicate? Is he disabled? I mean, what's wrong? Does God have a speech impediment? I mean, what's the problem? We're not listening. He has a mouth that speaks. He has eyes that see. And, and his vision is perfect, like he blazes way past 2020. And he sees you all the time, even when you don't think he does or don't feel like he does. He has ears that hear and it hears your prayers and your praise, which speaks to us in a context like this, or at least it should, because, you know, I mean, let's be honest, a lot of us, mostly guys, okay, here we are in worship. Oh, another chorus, good grief. Now, let's be true. I mean, look, maybe you don't have a great singing voice. I don't have a great singing voice either. I pity Matt. He stands next to me. Oh, well, here's the deal. Did God create your voice? Did he or not? Does it not sound beautiful then to him? Is he not worthy to hear it? Is this about you, this whole worship thing? Like, oh, you know, everybody's looking at me and I'm concerned about what they might think. And I, Who cares? He hears your voice, your prayers and your praise. He has a nose that smells. He's a completely sensible being, right? Hands that feel and they felt nails for you. And hands that help. And feet, we're told, that not, don't just walk and they don't just run. 
But if you have faith in Jesus, you have been washed and made new and made clean. And here's the disposition of the Father over you. Though you are a lying, thieving, adultering, coveting, murderous idolater. In faith in Jesus, he rejoices over you with singing. He dances over you. That's pretty astounding, at least to me. And here's the deal. Just like with the idols, when you worship Christ, I mean really worship Him, meet with Him in His Word, pursue Him in prayer, gather, plug in, and serve. Do the things that that He's given you as means to the end of what? Bribing Him? Hey, God, I really pray so that you'll, you know... Hey, look at the offer, the sacrifice of my service. Oh, God, don't you now owe me? I go to church every day. I, I pray every day. I read my Bible every day. I give this much money away, and I serve, and I've obligated you, therefore, God, haven't I? I've bribed you, right? So now you're going to give me what I want as though we don't have everything already in Jesus. Not for that reason. But when you really pursue him and worship and serve him, Simply because you recognize, you know what, there is one thing in the whole of the universe worthy of the worship and devotion of your life, and it's Him. And you delight in giving yourself to Him. Okay, wow. When that happens, then you become like Him. And what is that? It's full. Of what? Of His Spirit. And the fruit that His Spirit begins to generate in ever-increasing measure in your heart and in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And it's a non-exhaustive list. There's more. Wisdom, power. You're full, not empty. The point is that that too is the gospel. The gospel is, yes, and praise God, Jesus makes us clean because we're dirty. (laughs) The math is simple on that. But the gospel is also that Jesus makes us full. He satisfies us in a way that nothing and no one else can or ever will. So the mission that we're on of taking the mercies and message of Jesus to the world calls us first to really deal with this question of, okay, I need to be full of Jesus. The world needs to see a full people full of the things that are pouring through their hands like sand. Calls us first to be full in Christ, and then through us it calls the world to be full in Christ. So I just want to ask you guys two questions, and we're done. Question number one, are you empty or full? Because there's a big difference between empty and full. And if you're not full, then what are you worshiping? And if it's Jesus, then why are you worshiping him? Are you trying to bribe him like some pagan god? You know, hey, God, think you owe me now after all I've done. Is he the means to the end for you, or is he actually the end for you? And if it's Jesus, are you really giving yourself to him that by his spirit he might begin to develop in you the fruit of his spirit to fill you up with his wisdom and all of these other things? So, number one, are you empty or full? Number two, who in your world is empty? 
but needs to be made full through faith in Christ. Because here's the deal. It's not a mistake that they're in your world. God's placed them there for you. So talk to them. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful for um, your word, which is instructive. God, it is wisdom. Lord, accompanied by your spirit, it convicts our hearts and does spiritual surgery upon our souls in a way that brings health, wholeness, and perspective. It calls us to quit seeing you as the means to an end, but as the very end of all things, indeed the beginning and the end. We thank you for our Savior who is the all-satisfying one, for the privilege that it is to worship him and to serve him personally as we pour ourselves into his word and prayer and and in community with one another as we gather and, and worship and sing with the voices that he's made, some of which, frankly, don't sound that great to us, but sound quite wonderful to him. Lord, cause us to worship him to be enamored solely and completely with Him, to place ourselves and all things underneath Him. Lord, let us give Him the throne of our hearts and let us find our satisfaction and delight in Him. And then, God, use us to lead others to do so as well. In Jesus' name, amen.